All right, you ready to go? Here we are in the middle of Paul's missionary journey. We're stopping off at Philippi because Paul's ministry of Philippi catches something that I think for all of us uh, we understand that we are not a, I don't want to say normal or ordinary or common, we are a peculiar people because we have been touched by Jesus Christ. We have been called by Christ. We have been redeemed by Christ and therefore we are the people of God. And as such, we have an incredible privilege to think with the mind of Christ. And as we get into the book of Philippians, this book in particular as a church, as a fellowship, is unique among the churches in the New Testament because you don't see in Philippians a, a focus on end times or particular issues about uh, doctrines that are uh, contradictory or not being followed or you don't have an issue of uh, um, people playing the, the, the law card or the Jewish card. This is a completely pagan uh, Gentile endeavor that God has broken open in the world of Greece. And so the challenges for Paul to start refreshed, a blank slate, as it were, without any cultural baggage from previous uh, Jewish traditions, uh, he's going straight into uh, a secular world, a, um, a secular mindset, uh, in some cases a philosophical mindset we looked at. But the theme that you have in this book is grounding the people in the joy of Christ. And so if there is a theme that we want to follow as we go through here is the joy of the Lord is our strength. And as we go into this book, you see this over and over again. So it seems like the preoccupation that Paul has is his heart as an apostle of the gospel who's been set free. His heart is really one uh, that flies into the arms of Christ. And he so wants this for the Philippians. But he's very much aware of the fact that God is on the move and the gospel is moving out of Jerusalem, out of Antioch, and over into the west. And the gospel goes into Greece, Ionia, Thrace, Macedonia, and he gets this Macedonian call. This idea that there, is, there are so many mindsets in one sense, there's a cultural mindset, but there are so many city-states and little... little uh, a diverse opinion that to bring all these groups together into Christ, to have what Paul would say a common mind, a united mind. And so I've titled this one A Single-Minded Mindfulness. And so we want to get into this topic as we do so. Let me pray real quick. Father, thank you that you know what you're doing, and we don't. Thank you that you know exactly where our thinking is and where it needs to be. And so as your church, Father, I pray that you would guide us now to help us understand your mind. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to go back to uh, a comment that if you get into the New Testament, there are seven letters written to Gentile churches, and all seven letters have one main theme, and that is to get people to understand the love of God and, and to help those people become loving. Excuse <coughs> Oh, sorry. Let me turn off the microphone next time. 
back on you. And so the idea that Paul is trying to, to, to get across to these Philippians who don't know Christ, don't have the 2,000 years of Jewish history, he's really trying to say God wants to make you a lover. A lover of God and a lover of Christ, a lover of the Holy Spirit, a lover of people. And in this, in this ministry, God is creating a whole new humanity. It's called the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom of God, if you belong to the king, something takes place in your heart, in your spirit, because you are now in a discipleship relationship, an interdependent relationship where the Lord becomes your master teacher. Now, Again, I want to go back to the idea that, that what, they were, what Paul was going through is identical what Americans and what we are going through in our time because we have so many of the same issues in terms of how you perceive and answer these questions about life. And so as we get into this, thinking about that, that the philosophy of Greece, we're asking good questions, moral questions, intellectual questions, and it had to do with the mind. And so you have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle coming out with a, let's explain the nature of things. Let's, let's figure things out. And so you have a problem solution, a rationalization about how do you understand the world. And that would sometimes include religion and sometimes it wouldn't, but the Greeks were the ones who were the analytical thinkers, the left brains who really were going out to answer that question, what is good? What is the good way to live a life? What's a good way to have a legal system, a social system? And therefore the governments and the, <clears throat> the laws that preoccupied the Greeks became a social system, but they also were aware of the fact that there was a religious component and they, they didn't separate church and state for them, it was all integrated in a, in a crazy kind of way. But I want you to know this. is that At the same time Paul was working in Philippi, go back a couple hundred years. This is not a new, new thought. <clears throat> People ever since creation have been trying to figure out life. And if you go to India, in 560, in India there was a beginning of the Hindu thinking to answer these questions with, uh, with Siddhartha. The, the Buddha, uh, Buddhism and Hindu and Buddhism in China are different, but they were asking the same questions. But it was a philosophy to answer the questions, how do you live your life? In, uh, in China, there was another philosopher. Now, you wouldn't think of philosophy as such, but the Chinese philosopher... Kong Fuzi, not confusion, but Confucius. And yet he was not a Greek philosopher. He was more interested in psychology of how people live their lives with virtue. So it wasn't about explaining, uh, explaining the essence. Of, it was just how do we get along together? And therefore, but these philosophers took place um, about... 600 years, this is uh, 500 years, this is the time of the Old Testament minor prophets when, when, when um, Israel had just come back from Babylon and they were returning to rebuild and then there was 400 years of silence in Israel 
before the New Testament started. But, but at the same time, these philosophies were going on around the world. In Greece, they had the same idea of you have to be aware of what's going on because if you don't examine your life, you're living a life that's not worth living. And so when you're talking about Paul going into the Philippians, there's all kinds of discussions going on uh, as about how, do you li- how does a man live his life? And, and the answer in Philippians is y- you live it in Christ. You live it in Christ, and if you have this Christ-like answer, there's a sense of joy. And that's what Paul is trying to get to. The idea that in Christ there's a fullness, an understanding about who you are and where you fit in the universe and that your enjoyment of life is really found up in Christ. And therefore, we want to look at this thing about mindfulness and what's going on in the mind. And to understand this, the message, I'm going to try to go through four points. They won't be so quick, but I'm going to get to these four points. And we're going to talk about mindless, mindfulness versus mindlessness. We're going to talk about spiritual mindedness, as Paul would understand it. And then we're going to talk about the master's mind. And you think about Christ, and you think, wow, we have the mind of Christ. Well, what is that? What does he think about? We'll get to that. And then, then at the end, we're going to talk about being single-minded versus double-minded. So those are the points I hope to get to. We'll, we'll see how far we get. But this idea of single-mindedness uh, versus uh, uh, anything that you find in the world, there's an idea of, if you've heard of this, mindfulness it's very popular now in corporate training that to be mindful you have to understand that 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 has so many definitions and so if you're in a certain school of thought you will throw a shoe at me because I'm going to make this very simplistic (laughs) because this is a very serious thing for them but usually when you talk about mindfulness if, if you're into yoga and meditation back in 1970s, uh, there was the yogi that came out with a transcendental meditation, and the idea of of mind mindfulness and meditation has to do with getting into a state of mind where you become aware and unaware, but you're mindful beginning with your breathing. <sighs> And so many of these corporate trainings will say you need to slow down and you need to attend to and think about this world as you are sitting in or living in a world that's always changing as the Greeks would, would talk about change. But there's a sense of being aware and being present in that, in that moment. And this is what mindfulness According to one dictionary, it says it's the quality or state of being conscious or aware of something. If there is a tiger in the next room growling and you're so aware that you couldn't concentrate because you, you're now conscious of another presence that's penetrating into your world, you can't you cannot not attend to that, but the idea of being aware of your world of what's impinging on your thinking and what's pushing you and pressing, pressing in on you and pulling you and 
we're, we're being torn in lots of directions, but the quality of state of being aware of what's going on is what mindfulness is about. But the second mean, meaning is that there's a mental state that's achieved by focusing your awareness, slowing down, so that you look at the present moment. And a lot of times mindfulness means that there's an engagement of the moment, a presence of mind, as it were, that you are very much attuned to what's going on in one sense. But then there's another thing of beyond awareness. It's like, what do I do with the things that are confronting me? If it's good, I accept. If it's different, I accept. There's a sense and there's a shift in terms of whatever is there. I accept what's there. And in some cases, I become one with what's there. I join with what's there. And there's an openness to, without any judgment, I just give myself the freedom to let happen what happens. Whatever that is, is there's a sense of, I'm aware of what's going on. Well, that's mindfulness. And it's, it comes in, in, from a Buddhist mindset. You'll see that the, the, these truths, these noble truths, talk about the desires that you have and the evil that you suffer and the pain because you don't get your desires. And so you're aware of these desires and so you want to release the desires and it's this idea of I'm letting go. I'm just... Mm. And so there's all kinds of variations with this, but that began 2,500 years ago. And it's going around. If, you, if you've ever seen this symbol, the Tao, the Tao, I was at this birthplace of Tao when I went to China. But Lao Tzu would say, if you are depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you're at peace, you're living in the present. But the idea of, be present, be in this moment. Forget about the past and forget about the future. Uh, you just stay right here. And so that's what they say about mindful, mindfulness, being aware. But then there's this other side. It's like you want to empty your mind to be not preoccupied by these things, but to be mm, calm, relaxed, at peace. And there's where the meditation comes in for the yoga. Now my friend Albert he said the important thing is not to stop questioning, which is a mental, rational, analytical thing, which is Greece, uh, Greek. And curiosity has its own reasons for existence. One cannot help but to be in awe of what he contemplates in the mysteries of eternity, of life, of this marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery of everyday life. And therefore... The idea that your mind is going to be paying attention to what's going on. But the problem is, for many of us, what we pay attention to may be misguided or misdirected. And therefore, I would say one of my favorite quotes about American culture, for about us, perfection of means and confusion of goals seems to characterize our age. And isn't that true? We're always trying to get a faster downhill ski, a better computer, a new upgrade operating system, a new uh, air fryer or something, new, new innovation, something we want the better and the best. And so the old gets obsolete and we want the new. But the idea is we're trying to perfect, but we don't have the questions about why are we doing that? And therefore we get into a state of going 
through motions and not being mindful, not being aware of the moment. And so as a young Christian, as a young Christian, and I didn't know much about a whole lot, and I was kind of, uh, well, I'll be kind to myself. I was curious, I'll put it that way. But I went to a Christian conference at Purdue as a young man with the Navigators. And at at Purdue, um, I had never talked with a a, a speaker before, but this guy quoted quoted this poem. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, can I have a copy of that? And he gave it to me. And I memorized that, and I think this little quote, uh, poem, catches this idea of what is mindlessness in contrast. And the poem goes like this. We go and keep going until the object of the game seems to be to go and keep going. We do and we keep doing until we do without knowing, without feeling. Is there no time to stop and reflect? Is there no time to stop? Is there no time? In all our doing, have we gone, have we done anything? In all of our going, have we gone anywhere? And if we stopped, would we keep going? And if we reflected, would we keep doing what we're doing? For without reflection, life is strung out onto a meaningless chain into an an oblivion of events that never ends. And Jack Mayhall was the speaker that day, and it was anonymous. He didn't know who wrote it. And so I think I got that mostly right. The idea of, of having no idea what you're doing or just kind of going from one thing to the next. There's a mindlessness, and and if you're into this, um, if you're into the mindfulness uh, thinking, what you will read in the research is that your brain has trouble focusing, even when you're trying to meditate. They found that in a minute your mind will wander 47 percent of the time, and it's hard to concentrate because you're being pulled and pushed, and, and there's so much coming in on us at once that we're just being stimulated. So you have to close your eyes and just focus. But it's hard to do this when you have a mindlessness and trying to get to that state. Well, Peter would say it this way. He went to Jesus. When people are saying, well, Jesus, there's all kinds of things you're saying about yourself, and there's, some of these are difficult. And Peter asked Jesus one time, if he were left Jesus, who, who would you go to? And that's the question that you and I have to ask. Where do you go to get the sense of peace or joy or life or answers? And Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of life, and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. And therefore, this idea that Christ is bringing to his followers, his family, his bride, a sense of mindfulness that's called spiritual mindedness. Now, the Greeks had trouble with this. And so when Paul went to the Corinthians, he said, I want to speak to you Corinthians. You, you, You are Christians, but my word... I can't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, 
as infants in Christ, as men who don't know how to think about Christ, as men who don't know how to think spiritually. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not able. So to work with people who are not spiritually minded, there's something that's preoccupying their mind. It's called the flesh. How do you get my life to work? I'm going to do it in a fleshly way. And that leads to what Paul says in this case. There's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And then if you have this idea that you can walk in your life without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, then you're simply walking in your own understanding of what you understand, what your philosophy is, or what you perceive that the world is telling you this is how you should live. Just do it. And they're going to give you that philosophy. So Paul would write, don't, don't be conformed to the Greek culture, the Chinese culture, the Indian culture, because I want you to be conformed to Christ. But don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the way you're thinking. And that's what we want to get into, the master's mind. To think about Christ, to think about life, the way Christ would think about life, the way Christ would think about sin, the way Christ would think about holiness, the way Christ would think about healing, to think Christ's, Christ's thoughts after him. This is your privilege, believer. It's our calling because as Jesus would say to his disciples that a student is not above his teacher, but everyone after he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And therefore, who is your hero? Who is your mentor? Who is your source that's informing you about who you are and how you live your life in this fallen world? Who, where do you get your source of information? To whom shall you, you go? Well, it's our master. And Jesus Christ is our master teacher. And I don't know if you've thought about this, because we're talking about Greece, and we're talking about the philosophies, and you're talking about, about Jesus, but you wouldn't use the word philosophy with Jesus, would you? That normally doesn't connect. And yet, it really does connect, because... When you think about what life is for the Hebrew, for the Jewish person, you're talking about the, the, the Messiah's mindset in, in the sense of how he put life together. But as a philosopher, he was very good. I'm going to show you some things about this. Do you know what Jesus really thought about? Think about that. He was a thinker. He was a great thinker. He was an intellectual. He wasn't a, an academic or a Greek, as it were. But nevertheless, he had insights that nobody else had. Do you know the mind of Christ? He would, he would bring that to people, and, and they wouldn't know because they're fleshly. He's from above, they're from below. And therefore, we have been given a gift when the Son of God comes to each of us and he opens up his heart and his life, his mind, do you know what he thought about? I think he thought about these things. He thought about his father. He loved his father. He wanted nothing more to do than the father's will. And constantly going back to the Father. Father, I know you heard me. You always hear me. He was in touch with the Father so much that the communication between him, he and the Father was so intimate. And he would talk about God, his Father. The Jews wouldn't do that. 
he did. He would talk about the Spirit. I'm going to give you another helper, and he's going to guide you into the truth. And what preoccupied Jesus' mind after his baptism was he was led into the wilderness to be tested, but it said he was led by the Spirit. His heart was listening, attending to, in the moment, for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus walked with the Holy Spirit. Of course he did. And therefore, everywhere he went, he had a communion with the Father that was never broken until the cross. He was thinking about the training of the disciples because in a short while, three years, he was going to invest in these men and equip them to, with a great commandment, a great commission, and a great community to, to say, I'm going to give to you. In three years, imagine the training of these men just enough to know that he's going to leave them and let the Holy Spirit come in. He had to prepare his men, so he was always thinking about how do I help Philip? How do I help Bartholomew? How do I help uh, James the last? How do I help all these disciples? He was thinking about the lost. And he'd walk as a holy man in an unholy world. And yet when he stepped into the presence of sinners and tax, tax collectors and lepers and disease and demand, somehow Jesus could communicate a grace and acceptance and a mercy and a healing. He knew, he felt, he was wounded when people were wounded. And when Lazarus died, he was torn apart. Jesus would also think about rescuing the lost and he would think about restoring the saved. Those who belong to Christ who come, my daughter, go and sin no more. He was thinking about how do I get people out of the darkness into, into the light. And he was training, teaching. He was always answering questions. But he was engaged at the moment with every single individual. He was mindful, as it were, at that point, And mindful at, that, at, at what God was telling. The, what Christ was going through was wonderfully, powerfully, penetrating and warm. And then came the time he turned all these men and his attention towards the cross and Golgotha. He was thinking about the joy that would be set before him as he would go through the cross because he knew what he was doing was going to not only be for that group of men but would be a cosmological change that the kingdom of God would be introduced and the work of God would be fulfilled. He was thinking about building that kingdom and know that the spiritual warfare, that, that there's an evil out to destroy people and Christ was on the move. He thought about those things. He prayed about those things and he knew, he knew before he sat down at that table at the Last Supper that his time had come. He loved his own till his end but he knew Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knows what's in the heart of men, doesn't he? Yeah, he knows what's in my heart. He knows what's in your heart. And then if you read the scriptures, he knows what's coming, the judgment at the end. The nations are going to come, and some of those sheep and some of those goats will be separated. He says, these I don't know, and these I do. 
This preoccupied the mind of Christ. Let me tell you what he was not thinking about. Jesus didn't care about the pharisaical system. He didn't care about the weaknesses. He didn't care about the hypocrisies. He didn't try to reform it. He didn't send his men to the rabbinical seminary. He didn't think about the political world. He wasn't interested in trying to change the world because he's not interested in changing the flesh. He's not interested in changing your flesh. He's not interested in improving your life. He's interested in you. Not politics. He wasn't concerned about his own personal security. The foxes have holes. I don't. I don't worry about them. Can you imagine living without worry? <laughs> without the anxiety? Jesus didn't worry. He didn't care about what people thought. He wasn't impressed or persuaded by well, if you do this, Jesus, they'll think better of you. If you do this, you'll be king and they'll recognize you. You should go down to Jerusalem. Jesus was only listening to one director. He wasn't interested in the old traditions. He didn't seem to be bothered by breaking the Sabbath and feeding, healing, walking, teaching. He was not ashamed of being with sinners. Wow. This man was free, really free, because he knew exactly what he was getting into with tax collectors. And he wasn't concerned about competition, whether Satan was winning or not. You see, Jesus would talk in such a way that the persuasion that he would say to people would say, this man is more than just an apologist of the Jewish faith, more than just a philosopher. He was a master teacher. So you'd rank him up there with one of the best thinkers of his day. But make no mistake, when Jesus Christ was present, he was very present with every single person. And the way you see this, and I want you to see this very clearly, because if you don't see this, you may not respond in the way that the disciples do respond. Jesus would come to you and he would ask you questions. He would engage you. He would look at you. He'd be very present, and you may feel uncomfortable with that. But Jesus would do that. Look at this. He would say, uh, lots of times when people would try to test him, Jesus would get uh, involved with and, and his teaching. He was trying not just to teach, he was trying to get people to participate and engage them. And so as he did so, he would do this, he'd say to the Pharisees, they would come and they would try to test him. And Jesus would often say, have you never read? Have you never read? Didn't you read that in the scriptures? What does it say? The stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. Haven't you read that? And then he said in Luke, what is written in the law? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Can you imagine Jesus meeting some of these lawyers and Pharisees? And so they went and said, well, what does it say? Well, it says, you shall love the Lord your God and with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what did Jesus say in response to that? He gave them feedback. You know what he said? Get this. You've answered correctly. 
Jesus would evaluate the responses that people would give to them. He wasn't a mindless guy just saying things, the show's over, I'm going to go to the next gig. He was engaged, and he says, no, 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 no. I want your understanding to be full, your mind full of understanding what it is I'm doing. I want you to know who I am. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. And then Jesus looked directly at them. This is amazing. Look, what is that meaning? What do you understand? And it's about Christ engaging us. In Matthew, he talks about the Sadducees. They came uh, to ask Jesus the question. It says, Teacher Moses told us that if a married man dies and he had no children, you know the story. His brothers must marry the woman. You're familiar with that. Do you know what Jesus said? I love this. Do you, would you do this? You are so wrong. That's offensive. He's gonna, he's, you are so wrong. And Jesus would make no hesitation. You are so wrong. You don't know what the scriptures say. And you don't know anything about the power of God. And so when Jesus would get into these discussions about, well, they're thinking this about John the Baptist and, and these guys are over there saying this and they're trying to cast out these demons. You know what Jesus' thoughts were? Let them alone. Don't worry about them. Can the blind lead the blind? They're going to have their own issues. And Jesus wouldn't try to resolve those fool, fools who are going to follow a fool into the pit. Jesus was smart. And they couldn't trap him. They couldn't trap him. And therefore, people were saying, wow. They were astonished by his answers. And they became silent. But that isn't only with those who were the unbelievers. He would also do that with his disciples. And so with the disciples, uh, often in the parables, he would turn to them. He says, you know, this thing of the bread I was just telling you, you guys don't get it. Are you so dull? Oh, frustrated at times. It took a while for them to learn. Are you so dull? Are you still so dull? Do you not yet realize? And this is the thing that Jesus, he and Paul, he wants us to see that there's something that we are to know and be mindful of and full of this awareness of all that God is doing because Christ is thinking and teaching his people. Right before Christ goes to the cross, after the Last Supper, after they've been washed in the feet and they've broken the bread and have had communion, Philip, Philip says, and you know the passage, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't worry, don't let your hearts be troubled. And Philip says, I'm, you know, one question, Jesus, before you go. Uh, show us the Father and it will be enough. Philip said that. What did Jesus reply? Philip, I have been with you all this time and still you do not know me. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say? You get the idea that Jesus is working with a group of people that are slow learners. And that's where we are. 
Because if we're walking according to the flesh and we are dull in hearing what the Lord's teaching us, we too will miss out and Jesus would come right back because he knows where, what we're struggling with. And then he came back for Philip and he says, these things I've spoken to you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I will speak no more, I will speak to you plainly and I will show you the Father. And he's referring to after the uh, Pentecost where Christ is going to really open the door through the Holy Spirit. But they were astonished at this man. He taught as one who had authority. They never heard teaching like this because he wasn't like their teachers. There's something about Jesus Christ, this master that we follow. I want you to fall in love with the fact that there is no one on earth, no philosophy, no scientist, no researcher, no academic, who has known the mind of the Lord except those who have the Holy Spirit. And that's our privilege to do so. And as the time approached for Jerusalem... There's a purpose that Jesus said he would set his mind resolutely towards the cross. And at that time, in King James it says he set his face like flint. He zeroed in. He, knew, he was single-minded. He was going towards the cross. Likewise, when it came to pass that when that time came, he steadfastly set his mind. And that's what Paul wants to say to the Philippians. To have this mind of Christ, to be with him as ordinary men, and as ordinary men in the, in the disciples. You saw this in Acts. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that they were astonished because they had been with Jesus. Christians who spend time with Christ, know Christ, worship Christ, learn from Christ, reflect Christ. And this is the passage that Paul said to the Philippians. You have, we have, this mind of Christ. As we get into Philippians 2 next week, we're going to look at what that means for living a Christian life, a Christ-centered life, to have that mindset. We don't want to be dull. We don't want to be slow. We want to be following the Messiah. And that's the passage that Paul begins to say to the Philippians. Gentile, Jew, it doesn't make a difference. You walk with Christ. You get to learn from the Master. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you share with us your intimate thoughts. You share with us your transparent heart. You share with us what's on your mind. And Father, we ask that we would be single-minded, not double-minded, but we would have the same kind of attitude that you would have. By your Holy Spirit, would you come and disciple us that you would open our ears, that we would learn from you, that we would know you in such a way that there's nobody else we would listen to. Father, be with us now. Build your church. And as you ground, ground us into the gospel of Christ, bring us closer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.